You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the Post's newsroom to life on stage. Musician and late show band leader John Baptiste joins the Post to discuss his Oscar win, his new album, and why he took his music to the streets of New York during the nationwide protests over the killing of George Floyd last year. Let's listen. Hello, and welcome to Washington Post Live. I'm Robin Gibbon, senior critic at large. And today, my guest is the prolific and talented musician and activist, John Batiste. And on Sunday, Batiste was part of a trio to win an Oscar for Best Original Score for the animated movie, Soul. Soul also won Best Animated Feature, and it tells the story of an aspiring jazz musician. It's my pleasure to introduce John. Welcome him. Hi. Hello, Robin. How are you? I am very well. It's very nice to see you, and congratulations. Thank you very much. I'm very honored and grateful. The three of us put a lot of our heart and soul into the score. <laughs> no pun intended. <laughs> I am curious. It was such a, an unusual Oscar ceremony. What was it like to be in the room and to hear your name, hear soul called, hear your name called? It was surreal. <laughs> Felt like a, a true milestone in so many generations of music makers in my family, so many generations of creators and a lot of family farmers, a lot of people who come from the indigenous Louisiana, coastal Creoles, indigenous peoples. I mean, just so much has, has really culminated into that moment. And the music in Soul being this love letter to jazz and to black culture and that, that form of musical expression being recognized in that way, um, you know, it, it was a lot. It was a lot to process. I'm still really processing it all. And Trent and Atticus, you know, those guys are masters at the craft. And the collaboration being so unique and innovative in that way, spanning not only jazz and black music, but these really ethereal, celestial tapestries that they created in the way that they crossed over. You know, it, it's amazing that it, it resonated with people in this way because it's so different to anything that I've ever been a part of. Well, we had this amazing video from uh, the, the movie. And one of the things I wanted to ask you about is, I mean, your essence really is captured in the film, um, you know, from your face to particularly uh, your hands as they glide across the piano. I mean, I, I have to assume that in some ways that made it even more um, resonant to, to win for something like that, that really speaks to your humanity and, you know, a long lineage of your family. Oh, that, that really made it special upon seeing the film for the first time, the final edit. You know, we all worked on the film for two years. And after two years, you see many different edits. edits. But the final version really was when it came to life in a, in a way that I couldn't imagine. Just seeing all the pieces come together and seeing my hands and my essence in the main character, Joe, and seeing him play and people who I was with, my partner and all of my friends who saw the film, they saw me in this character and it was so emotional to see it come to life on the screen 
And as the narrative unfolds and you see how the music comes together as a character in the film and is so prominent um, in telling the story, it really meant a lot because it was more than just scoring a film. It was really putting a piece of yourself into a film that is going to be there for all time. Every age watches Pixar films. Every culture embraces those those narratives. They're kind of like modern mythology. You know, they're our contemporary mythology in a lot of ways. And to be at the center of that as a part of this main character's essence, it, it really meant a lot to me. And to bring jazz into that vernacular of, of animation, I mean, my, my colleague, Michael Kavna, talked about how uh, the film, through sort of the metaphor of jazz, really encourages people to think about the improvisational moments in their daily life. I mean, how challenging was it to create music for a film versus when you're working, you know, on a personal uh, a personal project like an album? I mean, do you think about it in a different way? I mean, it's obviously there's storytelling there. Well, that's one of the things that I really love about making music for film and TV and the stories that go with that is I'm in 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 essence always creating a story with my music. I think about life more than I think about music. I think that for me music reflects life. So I'm making a song or I make an album, I have a story that's behind it, even if it's not explicitly um, delivered in the song lyric, or if it's not something that the public is aware of. I'm always thinking of characters, and I'm always thinking of things that happened to me in my life, or stories that I'm making up in my mind. And when you actually have a script and, a, and characters and a narrative that's laid out for you, that's the kind of stuff that inspires me in any way. In, in general, I love that kind of stimulus. So um, there's not much of a difference there. It's just the parameters are a lot more clear when you're not the one creating the story, <laughs> then it can't really change very much. <laughs> one of the things that you said in your acceptance speech was you, you talked about the idea of everyone is working with the same 12 notes. And you are obviously you know, connecting that to music, but it feels like it, it resonates so far beyond that, that there is this sort of connective storytelling aspect that that bridges many divides absolutely um i think that we have you know in in discovering the human genome and, and studying that we see how much there is connectivity between us over time um across race across culture and there's a really deep understanding that with notes of music, you can express your individuality, the, 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 the thing that makes your culture and your people beautiful and your, your story. But it's still the same 12 notes that somebody else is using to express themselves. And that's how we are as people. We have the same desires. We have the same human needs. We have the same um, factory settings. And, <laughs> and how we program that and how we use that is the beauty of life. And that's found in the mundane everyday things. You know, it's, it's, it's our friendships and, and it's our family and, and, and all of our hobbies and 
just the basic things that aren't going on stage to accept the Oscar. It, it could be learning to ride a bike or <laughs> simple thing. And that's it. I mean, when in, in that same vein, you have a new album um, and one of the songs um, is called I Need You. And in one of your descriptions, you talked about how uh, you started with this bass line that you can hear in rock and blues and soul. Um, can you just sort of talk about the experience of putting together this video? And I'm curious if you weighed in on, on the fashion, on the art, on all of it. I was really, really excited to do this video because it brings together this old style of dance with Lindy Hop and the Jitterbug, you know, this early form of black social dance and black social music that that is uh, in that style of the original rock and rollers, you know, Lil Richard, Chuck Berry, uh, Fast Domino, doom, boom, 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 and put that in a modern context. Um, and I worked with some incredible, incredible collaborators. My brother, Jamel McWilliams, incredible choreographer, and Alan Ferguson, the director. We were the brain trust behind all of that that you see there. We sat and we said the first thing that we want people to feel when they watch this is this overwhelming sense of joy. No matter if you know the song, no matter if you like dance, no matter if you like this kind of sort of music video presentation, uh, if you've never watched a video in your life, uh, whatever you are coming from, whatever orientation you're coming from, you're going to watch this and feel just this overwhelming joy. Um, and and then from there, all the decisions were made, you know, just the concept, the story of, you know, being in this art gallery. And the music is also just, you know, it's a, it's a form of art. You know, there's a picture in the video and the dancers jump from the picture and in the picture they're in the 30s, you know, and that kind of was a metaphor within a metaphor. Uh, there's just so many little things like that in there. And the shirt that I'm wearing is this old kind of vintage um, shirt that my grandfather would wear. Um, and and it just there's there's a lot of things like that that are really special to me. And you may not know that are uh, special to Alan or special to Jamel. And when you watch it, you feel it, and that gives you that sense of joy and that feeling of being at home. Um, coupled with the song, you know, something that I worked on one of the first things that we finished for the album, it really kind of set the tone for what it is that I think the world wants to feel right now. There's a certain feeling that we're missing. There's a void that we want to fill with this kind of music and this kind of art and this kind of dance, you know? So, um, yeah, thank you for checking that out. Yeah, I mean, it's an absolutely infectious song and, and you're right. I mean, it, it brings so much joy and you know it's been it's been a year. <laughs> uh, I'll I'll leave it at that. And and you have really been you know you were out there you were marching you were protesting. I mean why what moved you to to take to the streets? I wanted to exist in a space that made sense for what it is that I have to contribute to society. And um, everybody can contribute different things. And it's not everybody's calling to be out in the street. But for me, I felt that it was a combination of so much of my work and all the other times that I've shared my music in public spaces in hopes of bringing a sense of community and reaffirming 
humanity. This felt like the right moment, more so than almost any other moment in the time that I've, I've, um, I've presented my art in that way. It, it felt like the thing to do to really speak to the people who were there that were holding on to such anguish and pain and give them a balm, something that will give people who are seeing the news and there's this polarizing divisive view that just breeds anger and apathy. And I felt like what we did was a, a, a it was a vaccine for that. It was a, a, a way to get people out of that space and to look at things from a more nuanced perspective and also to, in a more practical sense to point people towards the voting booth. Because at that time, one of the things that I was saying and one of the things that was really urgent was this election, this, this presidential election um, that, that um, you know, we see the result, but at the time, you know, we were, we were headed towards this historic election and you had over 100 million people who didn't vote in the prior election that were eligible to vote, you know, over 40% of, of Americans. Um, and, and that overwhelming sense of apathy coupled with that overwhelming sense of anguish and despair from COVID, from Breonna Taylor, George Floyd, just the wave of negativity there needed to be something um, to, to, to push back against that while still moving forward. Um, and, and that's what, what I wanted to represent with all the things that we led, whether it was the, the, the protest, uh, the, the voter registration rallies. Uh, you know, there's so many things that we did at that time that I felt really helped a lot of people, and I'm very proud of that. Was there a connection at all to your New Orleans roots and what I always think of as this incredible ability of New Orleanians to sort of see see their way through uh, hardship and and sadness through the joy of music and through that the connection that people get from from music and and food and just being in the space with other people. Yes, yes, absolutely. And New Orleans is what I call one of the, um, the it, it, it's, it's the home of what I call social music or one of the homes of social music in the world today. Social music is this form of expression, the form of music that existed before music was commodified and, you know, sold or, or, or put on CDs and t-shirts and streaming and all these things what was music when it was a part of the fabric of everyday life you know what what was music back in in africa in in the drum circles or you know what was music when you go to cuba you still see there's the rumba sessions or if you if you go to different parts of the world there's still music as a part of everyday life and new orleans is one of those few places um and that's what music is used for it's a lot of times used in worship or it's, it's a it's a ritual it's a form of ritual that is about transmutating things. Transmute, like you see that when someone passes away, there's a, a way that we go and we march and we celebrate their life and people are joyous at the funeral. Um, and, and there's music for everything. And it's stitched into life and everybody sees music as more than just entertainment. So that's really what it's about for me when I'm doing these street performances is bringing back social music and remembering the power of music as something in everyday life and in community 
and not just as a form of entertainment or a commodity. I know that many musicians, and certainly there's a history of music within um, various protest movements, and there's always this um, the conversation about music's ability to reflect the times. I'm wondering, do you think that music has the ability to to change the times, to alter the tenor of the times? Oh, I, I think that music, more so than any of the other forms of creative expression, has that ability to change the times because it moves rapidly, it speaks quickly. You hear a song and you, you can feel it immediately. That that there's nothing that needs to be translated to you. And once you feel that feeling, that feeling is transferable. You know, if you hear Sam Cooke, change gonna come. You know, Kendrick Lamar, um, we gonna be all right. Just uh, songs, uh, 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 all the songs from the, the 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 spirituals and the protest songs that Dr. King and John Lewis would sing, and you hear all of these things, and they still have so much power in them. And when you hear them at the right time, in the right moment in time, then you have a feeling of whether it's inspiration, whether it's a feeling of of in, of, of of being motivated to to do something, or you 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 feel a need to release. And there's a catharsis. You, sometimes we just need to cry and release the the tension of the moment. But then from that point, you 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 can transfer that energy to whoever is in your community or whoever you're around, and that becomes exponential. It compounds, and, and that's a beautiful thing when you see a song be the catalyst for a change in time. I'm, I'm curious, when you heard the, the verdict in the Derek Chauvin trial, um, how did you respond to that? I mean, was there, were, was there any music that went through your mind as you heard that verdict? Well, that verdict is a very, very strong message to everyone who who was out in the streets protesting and everyone who was speaking out that that push and that 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 way of vocalizing concern and intention mattered. It it really had an impact. I think it was impossible for everything that has gone on this past summer to not have impacted that verdict, along with the evidence and everything that we have with the videotape. So I, I, I really think that it was not a song that I thought of, but the, the, the whole world, seeing, seeing everybody around the world marching, you've seen people in all different parts of the world marching, um, and, and every action has a reaction. And that was the reaction that that and that sets a tone for what's to come. It, it's not that we don't have more that we can improve upon in our systems and our processes, but it shows that there was a point to it. There was a purpose to everything that happened this summer. One of the, the things that you have talked about is the need to um rework the Star Spangled Banner. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about why you think that is um, necessary and um, if, your, if your thoughts have you know, changed, evolved um, over this 
this last year. I find that reworking a song is a great way of giving people a perspective, a new perspective on life or a, a, a scenario that they may have in some ways taken for granted or taken as known. You know, America has a really complex history and that song being the song that represents the American ideal as our anthem could speak to America in that history more aptly, more astutely. And if you were able to do that in an arrangement, I thought it could be really powerful for, for, for people at this time when we're really questioning a lot of our systems, we're, we're questioning a lot of what has happened in the past to lead us to this point. And we're trying to also excavate a lot of things in the past that have been covered or that have been done in a way that if we were to do them today, you know, if we were to write the Constitution today, if we were to write the anthem today, what what we want it to represent that it doesn't represent. Um, and what will we amend? Um, and I think that that's a powerful thing to do in music and in art first. And a lot of times that's what happens. Artists continually lead the way in an almost prophetic sort of projection of, of where things could go or where things eventually will go. So that's what I think the arrangement was about in the first place. And then I had the opportunity to play it at the reopening of the NBA season, this, this season. And, um, you know, that was just a powerful moment to unveil this arrangement that showed the tension between blending Lift Every Voice and Sing, which is known as the Black National Anthem, and Francis Scott Key's Star Spangled Banner, and, and creating an arrangement where they're playing parallel to each other and in harmony with each other at different tempos, which, you know, the polyrhythmic sort of approach of two against three or, or three against four, however you want to conceptualize it, is very African. Um, and and, and there's, there's many different tonal allegories within that arrangement that I think are, 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 it just goes deeper and deeper the more you go into it and analyze it musically. But when you hear it, you don't have to know any of that to hear its symbolism. Um, and that's why I really thought it would be a good idea to perform that at the opening of the NBA season. And there are moments when there, when it, when it, it sounds like they're in conflict with each other to some degree, which is part of the ever-evolving jazz-like improvisation of the country, it seems. Well, the conflict is built in. Um, when you when you build when when you build a country. When you build a country that's based on functioning by compromise and by constant negotiation and, and, and constant pushing on either side of the aisle or, or even within within Congress and, and the way that that is built to work is going to breed tension. It's going to breed a lot of, of um, tension and things won't be resolved quickly all the time. Um, and that's the thing, it's a marathon, you know, it's not a sprint. And that was represented in the arrangement. <laughs> well, before um, we go, I would love to just get to a couple of audience questions. One of which is from uh, Christine Spanier, I think is how it's pronounced, from Oregon. 
And she wants to know, and I think probably a lot of people do, there is so much joy and hope that comes through in your music. How do you keep hopeful and encouraged in these times? Oh, prayer, friendship, <laughs> having good friends, having good, um, good downtime, and, and really disconnecting. I think a lot of stuff that we go through is internal. And the internal life that we live, it breeds external traumas and events that, you know, again, that's exponential as well. We pass that on to other people. And I think in this time where everything is happening, we can get all of this stimulus at all times. We got to give it a break. Um, and we got to find a way to disconnect. And that gives me, uh, that that's my constant push. That's my constant agenda for myself is to balance the, um, the input with the output. And, um, a lot of a lot of what we're dealing with now is as a society trying to figure out how to balance all of you know we got the technology we <laughs> we have so Too much, much technology happening. sometimes you know it's 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 a lot so the balance is is where the joy can come from i believe and um another question from california elizabeth kenoff would like to know uh, uh, here's that usual question. If you could tell students of color one thing about breaking into the entertainment industry, what would you tell them is key? Hmm. <laughs> into the, man, that's a... You could tell them too. <laughs> yes. Okay. Um, be yourself. Don't don't change or try to make yourself fit into something that doesn't feel right on a, on a gut level. I mean, distrusting that instinct, um, which I think happens more so to artists of color and, and women. Um, there, there's a, I don't, I don't, I don't even want to necessarily say it's systemic, but it's something that we as a society are still reckoning with in trying to understand where people of color, black genius, genius of a woman, where does that fit and how do we perceive that? How does that, how does that exist without us feeling uncomfortable? Um, and, and I think it's better to push into that instead of being deferential. Um, because I think at the end of the day, you belong where you belong and, and you have to own that. And, and that's important for you to know when you might be in spaces where that may seem like it's, it's not right. Um, just own that. And, and, um, and again, I would say the same thing as my other tip, balance. You know, have, have, a, have good relationships with people you collaborate with it be a good person first, <laughs> you know, um, always lead with quality and, um, being a good person. And, and then a lot of things will get out of the way, you know, that's it. Sounds like very good advice. Well, John, I know that you have, uh, to many, many things that you have to get to still today. So I do appreciate your taking time 
uh, to spend with us. And again, congratulations on the Oscar win. Yes, indeed. Thank you so much. You are the best. I'm grateful to be here with you. And um, next time in person, hopefully. <laughs> Fingers crossed. <laughs> and I'd like to thank you all for joining us. And uh, please join me on Thursday at 11 a.m. for a program about what's next in retail. I'll be speaking with Philip Krim, the founder of and CEO of Casper, among others. Have a great day. Thank you. Thanks for listening. To hear more interviews from this series and other Washington Post Live programs, visit us at WashingtonPostLive.com.